Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. Gracious Father, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, our single concern, in whose name we pray, amen. Friends, listen with open ears now to the book that we love from Acts chapter 9. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha which in Greek is Dorcas. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, who heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him with the the request, please come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him to the room upstairs. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha? Get up. Then she opened her eyes. And seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Meanwhile, he stayed for some time in Joppa with a certain Simon, a tanner. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. David Brooks is a leading cultural commentator. He has for a significant amount of time been a regular op-ed writer in the New York Times. He also teaches at Yale University. And I remember some time ago watching a TED Talk that he gave called Resume Virtues, versus eulogy virtues. And it was a fascinating observation. He, as he began his talk, noted that in the society in which we live, increasingly, we, we cultivate people who mostly center our lives on what, on what he calls resume virtues, the kind of, the kind of aptitudes and strengths that, that earn you money, that <clears throat> excuse me, they get you degrees in life that, that help you make partner, that help you get ahead and climb the, climb the ladder, so forth. But he says, to, to the neglect, oftentimes, of cultivating what he describes as eulogy virtues. These are the kind of character traits that people talk about at your funeral. Whether you were someone who was kind, generous, hopeful, compassionate. 
And he, in, in drawing on the work of, of several social psychologists, talks about how we, like, like all cultures, we live a struggle between the two sides of human nature, which he, for the sake of his talk, nicknames Adam 1 and Adam 2. Adam 1 is the, is the ambitious external side of our nature, the, the side of us that, that wants to build things, to create, to earn, to achieve. Adam 2 is the, the humble, the interior side of who we are, that longs not just to do things, to be, but to become a whole person. Adam 1 wants to conquer in life, where Adam 2 wants to, to follow a calling. Adam 1 cares about accomplishment. Adam 2 cares about inner consistency, integrity in life. Adam 1 asks, what can I do? How does this work? Adam 2 asks, why are we here? Adam 1's motto is success. Adam 2's motto is love, redemption, reconciliation. Oftentimes, the conflict that we feel between these two sides of us is because they operate according to two very different sets of logic. Adam 1 operates according to an economic logic. You risk, you earn reward. You earn, you work, and so you're rewarded and you achieve. Adam 2 operates according to a very inverse logic. The way that you become strong is by being weak. The way that you grow is through having the humility to know how much you don't know. In order to receive, you give. In order to really find yourself, you lose yourself. Brooks notices that our dilemma is that increasingly, as a society, we, we reward Adam 1, we reward resume virtues, and we devalue eulogy virtues. But in the end, paradoxically, that makes us less human. I think on a, especially on a day in which we are marking the achievements of the, the students among us who are graduating from a phase in education and heading into, heading into further education or work, it's worth noticing in this story the way that the resurrection of Jesus reframes what constitutes a life of consequence. The resurrection reframes what a great life really looks like. And so I want to invite you to, to the village of Joppa for a few minutes together with me this morning. And I want to invite you to stand in that upper room and simply watch what unfolds. And in particular to watch for what we're told of the life of Tabitha, who we meet in this story, and then the new life of Tabitha that she experiences as she's, as she's raised. Now, I want you to consider what we're told of, of this person that Peter raises from the dead. God, only once in the early Christian movement, grants the miracle of resurrection. This is the only time it happens. There's multiple times that Christian leaders heal people, provide for 
for people, but this is the only time that, that a resurrection happens in the Christian movement. And God raises not some well-known church leader, not somebody like Peter or Paul, not some national or civic leader, but Tabitha. Tabitha, we're told, is a woman who is a disciple of Jesus. Uh, we, can, we can slide right by that little detail because of our cultural distance, but in the, in the deeply patriarchal world of Jewish society and the Roman Empire, well, this, is, this is a remarkable thing. This is the only time in the New Testament that a woman is called a disciple. And this is too early in the Christian movement for her to have been a disciple of anybody other than Jesus himself. And we're told that she is renowned for a life of service and generosity. In particular, as, as we watch the people who weep her death, service and generosity to a people group that would have been among the most powerless of that day, widows. Again, in a, in a patriarchal society, most women, especially if you were not a woman who was born into one of the ruling classes, you, you depended for your subsistence on having a husband or a male heir, a son. And so if you were a woman whose husband had died, if you were a widow in that society, if, if you were not a part of one of the, one of the nobility, your, your very life was, was now in question. There was no social safety net in that society. And so these were, these were women filling the room where Tabitha died for whom Tabitha had likely provided for their very subsistence, their very, their very life. When I think about the, the scene that develops around Peter, as Peter walks into this room and sees the body of this deceased woman, he is surrounded by women who are weeping and who are literally showing him and wearing on their bodies the impact that Tabitha had had on their lives. Tabitha here represents all the people who in the kind of society in which we find ourselves often go unsung. Who come early, stay late to serve, who spend themselves doing for others what not very many other people notice, who care for the elderly or for small children, for people that are helpless or we often consider unimportant, people who clean floors, wash dishes, serve meals, people who give of what they have and then give of even what they don't really have. This story shows us that these are the great lives in the kingdom of God. These are what great lives really look like. One of my favorite authors is a Oxford a professor from the 20th century named C.S. Lewis. He became a Christian around the middle of his life. And following that, he wrote a provocative, fascinating little novel about a fictitious bus ride in the afterlife from hell to heaven. And the novel is called The Great Divorce. It depicts a narrator character being guided on this, on this tour and as the bus arrives in heaven and the, and the passengers disembark 
and the narrator character is finding his way around, he sees somebody in the distance who's being celebrated with such fanfare that he thinks that he's about to meet the Lord himself. But his guide goes on to correct him. And the figure that he meets is something of a Tabitha. I want you to listen to how Lewis describes this moment. Is it, is it, I whispered to my guide? Not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she is one of the great ones. You will have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. He goes on to point out all the people who Sarah's life impacted and how, how they now celebrate her with, with fanfare. And the guide, after, after pointing out all the people following her in procession, says this. He says, I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, it's like when you throw a stone into a pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength. But already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint such as yonder lady to waken all the dead things in the universe into life. I love that. Fame in our little moment and fame in resurrection country are two quite different things. So one question perhaps to reflect on as, as we make our way from this story back into, back into our lives this week is this. Am I living a life that looked at through the lens of the resurrection would be considered great? Am I, am I living a life that cultivates eulogy virtues? Now watch what happens as Tabitha experiences new life. Peter puts all the widows outside. We're told that he kneels and he prays. I imagine this is a moment of, of healthy desperation here. And then he turns to the body of this woman and speaks to her. And here he's, he's just imitating what he's watched Jesus do. If you were with us for prior weeks of the series, you know that Jesus says almost exactly the same thing to a little girl as he raises her to life in, in his ministry. He says, Tabitha, get up. And in that moment, she opens her eyes, he takes her hand, and he draws her back into life, sits her up from the grave, back into new being. Now, notice again, who it is who is raised here. God raises through Peter someone who's working with widows. In other words, somebody who's giving their life to address poverty, material, this world need. And I don't think that that's an accident. Because the resurrection, among the things that it shows us, is that this world matters to God. The resurrection bodily of Jesus and the promise that God will one day 
recreate and heal this material world with its empty stomachs and its tears, with its heartbreak and its death. The resurrection is God addressing a world of not enough, not enough clothes, not enough food, not enough life, water, compassion. What this means is that for you and I, as we follow the risen Jesus, as as we live lives that address the needs of those around us, those things, even even though we don't think much of them, even though they don't seem eternally consequential, they matter and last forever. I love how one leading biblical scholar named N.T. Wright puts this dynamic. He wrote a a landmark book on the resurrection of Jesus called Surprised by Hope a number of years ago. And he talks about this dynamic near the end of that book. And this is what he says. He says, what you do in the Lord in the present life is not in vain. You're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's about to be thrown on a fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Then he says this, every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music, inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation. Every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk. Every act of care and nurture for comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. God's recreation of his wonderful world, which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of his spirit means that what we do in Christ and by the power of the spirit in the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. This is what the new life that God promises us in Christ means. I, I, hope that, I hope that you see this dynamic, I'll say particularly for those of you for whom you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. And here's, here's why. I think this moment shows us what deep sense the Christian teaching of resurrection makes of your life, what deep sense the gospel makes. I say that because, you know, I, I guess... Not, not knowing uh, all of you who, who would consider yourself kind of processing uh, spirituality, you know, I think the chances are likely that, that you often, often as not, you really care about issues of, of education for, for underprivileged children or that people everywhere in the world have access to clean water. You care about a thousand other issues of material need in this world. And yet you live inside a story of the world that says that there's no transcendent meaning to life and that 
that all, none of this matters and lasts in the end. The resurrection would say your instinct that the things, these things matter, that's not an illusion. It's not some biochemical mistake in your brain. It's in you because you're made in the image of a God who made this world and loves this world and has acted in Jesus to rescue this world. For those of us who are followers of Jesus and part of his community here, this means that we're part of what the risen Jesus is doing in the world. Uh, this weekend is, is a weekend that the Christian community celebrates the ascension of Jesus. We prayed and sung about this in the beginning of worship today. It's the moment in the life of Jesus depicted in the beginning of the book of Acts where after being risen from the dead, Jesus commissions his followers to spread the, the good news to the ends of the earth, and then he ascends into the heavens, into, into God's dimension of reality, and takes his seat on the throne of the universe. The point of the ascension isn't that Jesus is, is gone somehow, but now that the Jesus who suffered and died for us sits on the throne of the universe. And that by his spirit, because he's given us a share of his own life, we're a part of what he's doing now in the world. This comes through in the very beginning of the book of Acts that we listened to this morning. In the first chapter of Acts, if you, if you flip back to the very beginning of the book of Acts, the Acts is part two of a two-part work in the New Testament that begins with the Gospel of Luke and then carries on to what we listen to this morning. And in the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke, who, who writes that book, he, he writes to his recipient, he says, in my first book, in the Gospel of Luke, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. What we now call the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus living and dying and rising. This is what Jesus was beginning to do. And now, what he'll go on to write in the, book of the, in the book of Acts as the Christian movement is birthed is what Jesus, risen from the dead and now sitting on the throne of the heavens, is now doing in the world through his ordinary followers like you and I. Just before the story that we listen to, uh, this comes through in a moment in which Peter heals a, a sick man named Aeneas. Peter addresses him and he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And in that moment he's healed. The point is that it's, it's Jesus who's doing these things in the world. It's Jesus who was caring for starving widows in Joppa. It's Jesus who was putting clothes on their back through Tabitha. It's Jesus giving a woman new life. It's Jesus acting through you and I whenever we respond in his name to the tears or to the empty stomachs or to the other kinds of needs that are around us. The promise that we have in the scriptures is that Jesus says to us in a mysterious way that's too large and beautiful for words, when you show up to meet a tangible need, when we show up to offer clothing to someone that does not have it, when you, when you show up to address tears that are, uh, that are standing in the cheeks of somebody that you love, when, when you show up to offer comfort, care, love, help, generosity to somebody, Jesus says, when you do those things, I'm doing those things. The resurrection means we get to be a part of what 
Jesus is doing now. And we get to be a part of what God's doing forever. It's worth wondering about if you've listened to these stories over the last weeks with us, why it is that God raises Tabitha. You know, he, here, she's, she's called back from death, so to speak, for a time, but we presume that she'd go on to finish her life and die once more. Furthermore, there's lots and lots of Christians that, that aren't miraculously risen from the dead in the book of Acts. The point of this story is that it's a window of what God promises he will one day do for all of us. Here, uh, death is denied for one woman for a time. Tabitha will one day go on to die again. But the promise of resurrection is that there will be a day in which death will be denied once and for all for good. When we will one day open our eyes and see God face to face forever. That just as Peter takes the hand of Tabitha in this moment and draws her up into life, there'll be a day in which the Lord of the universe takes you and I by the hand and calls each of us by name into an eternity with him in a healed cosmos forever. The hope of this story is that if you belong to Jesus, there will be a day in which you open your eyes to your Lord forever, in which you will hear the words, Abby, Tom, Tabitha, Seth, Jared, it's time to get up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.